All right, Zig coming in on the top 10 of the show. We have Ben Vaughn, singer-songwriter extraordinaire. Ben's a multi-instrumentalist and a composer. He's scored for television shows and films. You might recognize two of them, That 70s Show and Third Rock from the Sun. Ben's also shared a lot of opening bills with the Violent Femmes and uh, made a record with Alan Vega, Cubist Blues. Really cool. Definitely recommend a checkout. And he got noted for his songwriting by Bob Dylan on Bob Dylan's radio show. Ben also has his own radio show called The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. It's also on a podcast platform. If you go to his website, benvaughn.org, you can uh, you can get access to that. But we're here to talk about his new record, The World of Ben Vaughn. And we're going to listen to a track off it. This is the opening track, Asking for a Friend. Asking for a friend, Ben Vaughn, 
The World of Ben Vaughn, available now on all streaming platforms. Catch him if you can. A lot of dates in Spain. Um, yeah, Ben was an awesome dude. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think we became fast friends. I hope so, at least. Um, before we get to the show, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe, uh, or share one of the podcast on the podcast platforms, it helps me keep reaching cool guests and sharing their insights with you guys. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ben. Yeah, a good friend of mine um, lives in Cleveland. Uh, he, he is the um, president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, no actually. way. Cool. He used to be, when he was a kid, he was my road manager back in the 80s. Yeah. But I, I always tell people I gave him his start, which is not really true, but, you know, uh, it, it works. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Well, that's yeah, a good yeah. friend to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He owned a record store in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah? Uh, he used record record store, and he sold his half of the store. He was like 21 years old. And was looking for something to do, so he ended up being my road manager for about a year and a half. And we went, uh, we did. I think we did three coast to coast tours with him. Wow, he could, he just yeah. couldn't leave the music. Then what? What was the record store? Oh, it was called the Philadelphia Record Exchange. It was great because uh, it was it was started out as a used record store, and then they started buying punk and alternative records, and and they had street concerts in front of the store, like every every Friday. I mean, every Saturday afternoon and like, um, you know, I think Black Flag played there. I wow. played there. Yeah. Hazel, At Hazel Atkins, the West Virginia one man band, Psycho Billy guy. He played there. Yeah. Oh, that's sick. Very. What What part of Philly was that? Right off, right on South Street. Right on South. Okay, cool. Yeah. Which is, you know, the hip, it was like the, you know, the hip strip at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So I've been to, I've been to Cleveland um, yeah. recently, too, like right before uh, lockdown. I, I was there to do a Q&A at the Rock Hall, and I also did a gig at the Beachland. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, very cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I played a little sol solo acoustic gig in the small room. The Tavern? Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great. I love it there. Yeah, I know, the Beachland. Um, so during the shutdown, uh, me and a buddy of mine, we uh, – we did a lot of streaming for the Beachland to keep that place open in the grog shop and the small venues, not small, the big venues that we have around here. But you know what I mean? Like, um, it, it's because you're right. It's such a magical spot. And like, that's, that's cool that you can come here and do the Q and a and hit a gig. Did you see a lot of familiar faces from the Q and a at the gig? I did. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was the, the Q and a, they were having, they had a, um, an exhibition it was uh, rock and roll and television hmm. and because i did music for tv shows you know right. uh greg harris said you, i gotta fly you in for this because you know you know that 70s show is is like probably the most rock and roll sitcom ever Definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know as far as yes. music goes so uh it was great you know I, uh, it was really cool the the rock and roll hall of fame what a what a imposing crazy structure <laughs> right uh, was that your first time being there yeah, and it was <laughs> it was awesome. it was like it was like, uh, it was like uh, I'm very easily stimulated, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I, I I'm 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 ADD adjacent, <laughs> <laughs> and that plays really brought it out of me because it's just everything's going on at once. I'm like, ah. You know? <laughs> yeah, you can't walk in that room with being like, am I walking in? The, it's slanted. It's a giant pyramid. You know. 
<laughs> yeah, I found myself on a very steep elevator going up. <laughs> it was a pretty funny feeling, but it, but it ended up, I mean, it was really great. That's awesome. Uh, I, I, I love Cleveland. I, I've only, you know, I only I used to play at the Agora as an opening act I, uh, with the Violent Femmes. I played there a couple yeah? times. No way. That's awesome. How did you hook back up with those 80s. guys? Yeah. Oh, we had the same manager back yeah? in the eighties. Yeah. Interesting. So, like, um, let, well, let's kind of let's kind of let's dive into it, man. That's um, want the I wanted to start off by asking um, I, this new record's really awesome. I really love like how it's like it's stripped down, but it's leveled or layered just in the right way to like amplify the the textures of the uh, convey the song best. But I was wondering if there uh, if there's ever going to be a recording of "Don't Spill Ketchup on My Toast Bread." In, 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 in its entirety <laughs> the first song i ever wrote uh <laughs> actually it's not the first song i ever wrote i wrote a song uh when i was about 10 years old when uh, british invasion was happening and i noticed that every song either had the words all right or come on in them like come on baby all right you know all right. yeah so so i wrote a song called all right come on all right <laughs> come on and and it sounded like the beatles you know uh, that, that was the first song I ever wrote, All Right, Come On. Uh, when I was 10, I didn't play an instrument yet, but I knew exactly what the instruments would do, you know, if if I had them in my hand. Yeah, when I was 12, I was in a band called Verbal Garbage, and um, I started out as a drummer. But in this band, I played guitar for the first time, and we wrote this, create. We, 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 you know, we wanted to be psychedelic, but we weren't old enough to be taking drugs yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we imagined what the psychedelic experience would be in our 12-year-old minds. And we came up with this really ridiculous song that had about 120 verses to it. Don't spill ketchup on my toast bread. How do you know about that? I did research, <laughs> man. I was getting ready for you. <laughs> and that's like, <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much how much of that uh, psychedelic uh, uh, um, uh, imaginative what it is do you think panned out to being really what it is? <laughs> like, I bet it's not far off. <laughs> yeah, it probably wasn't. You know, I ended up getting getting into psychedelics yeah. later, and and and. Um, it didn't seem that different. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so yeah, that's amazing. Like at, at 12, like I, I started playing maybe like four years later, 16, 15, no 15. So three years later. And like, I wish I was like picking at stuff when I was 12. I just didn't have like that, that dedication or like, I just like, I grew up around blues and like cool music. It just didn't strike me as like something I could do. Um, but that so at twelve you're like already playing and like writing songs and like, <laughs> like and 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 like and being aware of like tropes like come on you know what I mean like that's something I think about now doing certain gigs I'm like oh man you know how many times do they say baby in this Led Zeppelin song and the answer is a lot but like you know what I mean like it, to be aware of that at that age is like it, you had to be surrounded by a lot of music right I was obsessed yeah. yeah. Um... Well, I was sick a lot when I was a kid, and, and um, I lived in a house that didn't have any heat on the second floor, um, an old house built in 1900, and this is New Jersey in the winter. You know, you, you're, you're in Cleveland, so you understand right. winter. Uh, <laughs> you know, we would have, you know, in Jersey, not as bad as Cleveland, but, you know, you would have uh, nights where it's 11 degrees, you know. And so uh, because I was sick a lot, my parents set me up on the ground floor in a cot we had heat on the ground floor 
in the middle of the living room and they gave me a transistor radio to keep me company at night. Mm. And um, I would be alternately sleeping and not sleeping. And I, I ran these really high fevers. So I, you know, what is fantasy and what is reality is mm. a little blurry, you right. know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I heard, but I listened to radio all night long. Like it was my, my, uh, you know, my, it kept me company. And, um, and also it was like an escapism from, you know, a, a, a working class New Jersey kind of, uh, I don't want to say grim because, you know, people have had it a lot worse than me, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was not an inspiring neighborhood I lived in, you know, <clears throat> and, uh, or a creative environment or anything. And I just drifted into the radio and up there into the ionosphere. And I would pick up radio stations from all over the country. I would listen to the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday nights and I would, you know, listen to WLS in Chicago. I could pick up all these stations. So I was obsessed very early on and I recognized patterns really quickly too, which made me um, a weird kid to hang around with. Yeah. Like my friend, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, like having a, a single friend who would understand how, I don't want to say advanced, but how, how a better word would be how, how tuned in I was to something that was outside of our neighborhood, you know? Right. and outside of our environment and in the creative mind like i was living in my mind and music was always part of it and it was inside me and it was uh, you know and whatever i could do to be near music i i knew what i was meant to do uh from the time i was probably eight years old that's incredible you know because so much of us spend so many people i should say spend this their whole life trying to figure out what they want to do you know what i mean or even what they like to do and I think it's such a, a blessing and a curse to be like, I want to, I want to do that, you know, because I got that, like that, that, that thing, the chase and that, that comfort in which it gave you, it's such a beautiful thing. What were some of like the patterns that kind of stuck out to you right away? Was it like song structure patterns? Was it like rhythmic patterns? Um, well, I hear all the instruments uh, for okay. some reason. Yeah. And, I, and I remember thinking, okay, harmonica songs, uh, I should have known better by the Beatles. And then My Boy Lollipop came out by Millie Small, which was a ska record or reggae, whatever. I don't even know what they called it. <laughs> it wasn't called <laughs> reggae yet. Um, but that was a big hit. And there's a harmonica solo in the middle. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And so I would notice when harmonicas showed up or I would, I would notice when uh, like the, the solo in Hard Day's Night. It sounds like the biggest 12 string you've ever heard. Right. right. Yeah. But actually what I, what I found out later, and I always wondered like, did, something going on there is suspicious i don't know what the actual instrument is and i found out many years later that george martin slowed down the tape and played a piano oh. and then sped the tape back up and and so that's doubled on piano which is why it's you can't tell exactly what instrument it is but i would pick all that apart i could hear hear that stuff and i would yeah. sometimes i would sometimes write down i would hear a song you go okay acoustic guitar bass drums tambourine uh, you know, saxophone comes in on the chorus with reverb and I would like kind of just be able to analyze um, and absorb this stuff. The details came naturally to me. So I knew I had to be involved in music because something was going on. Right. You know, just to even be that aware of anything, you know, to be that analytical is like, <laughs> I think back when I was that age, I was not that analytical of anything. So I'm like, in, I'm always inspired. I was inspired by people that were dedicated, you know, and I'm like, how do they, how do they do that? You know, 
Well, yeah, and the thing was, was my grades were terrible in school, so <laughs> so it, it, it was believed that I had a learning disability <laughs> of some sort. And I'm like, no, I just want to get the hell out of here so I can play rock and roll. That's all that's going on here, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, it was very simple for me. I knew exactly, exactly what I was cut out for, and school wasn't cutting it, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, it sucks because, like, schools are so standardized and, like, you have to, it's, it's at that age, it's so hard to like, to understand the skills you have and diversify them, right? Okay, you're good at recognizing patterns. Let's figure out how we can help you do that with math. But when you're that age, you're like, I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I also, I also was just so anxious to grow up and, and, and be on my own and, and, yeah. and, and be in a band or be, you know, I, I was ready to either be a songwriter or a performing musician or, you know, a session musician or even a DJ on the radio. I just knew that this is what I had to do. And now you do it, it all. Was, <laughs> now, yeah. Yeah. And I made it. Yeah. Now, now I'm doing all of it. Um, it took a while. Right. Um, right, right. But I, but I got there, you know? So when you're like this music obsessed kid and you're just hearing all this stuff, was there anyone during that time that helped, clarify it like hey i have a drum kit come on over let me show you some chops or hey this is how you hold this chord like was there a like a, a musical kind of idol that opened that door even further for you yeah and when i was i started as a drummer and i was playing in battle of bands and school dances and stuff and in philly you know like like where i grew up in new jersey it's right across the river from philadelphia so philly radio was our thing and philly was very soulful it was either soul music or doo-wop was all over the place. And even when the Beatles hit, it didn't hit as effectively and as quickly in the Philly area because it wasn't as danceable as do as up-tempo doo-wop or soul music. Right. And dancing was everything. It was everything. And so I started out as a drummer, which means you keep people on the dance floor or they don't hire you again or invite you back. Right. You know? Yeah. But you have to keep people on the dance floor. So I started out as a drummer, but by the time I was about fourteen or fifteen, I really I realized I wanted to be a songwriter. It's um, a, I was gonna say it's interesting yeah. as a drummer, you kind of see you're kind of like the conductor of the band in a way. You see where all the you're cueing all the things, you get to see where they're hit, you know, when they hit and how impactful they can be. Like that's like I think a drummer is a very special seat within the band. They like oversee so much of what's happening crowd wise and music like dynamic wise and it's interesting it sorry that's so that is so true that's so true because when i was playing drums <clears throat> i would notice when the audience jumped on the dance floor and you know and I, I would know oh okay so this beat really gets them going you know yeah and like what was successful and then when when you know it would it would drag. I'd be like, well, okay, that's, that's like listening music, not dancing music, you know? Right. And which really became by the time I wanted to be a songwriter, progressive rock and, and Crosby, Sills and Nash were all in the vogue. So it was like, you know, dancing. I mean, that's not dance music, you know, thick as a brick by Jethro Tull is not exactly, you know, going to fill the dance. <laughs> yeah. <floor, you> know? <laughs> so sure. I couldn't really, yeah, I couldn't really relate. And I decided I was listening to a lot of we had a country station in Philly that I was able to pick up on the radio. And I started falling in love with Tom T. Hall and Johnny Cash and 
Roger Miller and writers like that and, and really became obsessed with lyrics at that point. Mm. And I had a friend named Fitz who was a really good rhythm guitar player, but he wanted to be a lead guitar player. So he decided to teach me how to play rhythm guitar so he could practice lead while I'm playing. Okay. And every day yeah. after, after school, we would go to the Corvette's department store. Uh, they had up in the appliance section, they had um, a row of acoustic guitars, silver tone acoustic guitars. And they had some music books there you know, songbooks, like the Beatles songbook or the, right. you know, the Motown songbook the or whatever. The fake book, the real book. Yeah and, we, yeah, and we would go there every day after school, pull one of the books down and sit on the floor and play guitars until dinner time every day for like a year. And uh, the woman who ran that department, her name was Grace. She thought we were really cute, so she let it happen, you know. Nice. Yeah, she was, she was like uh, a saint, really, yeah. you know. Um, and that's, that's the thing that, you know, as I'm sure you know, is especially with the kids you're working with, to, to run into somebody who cares enough to recognize who you are and encourage it. Whenever that, pers whenever that person arrives, you are a lucky person. You're really lucky if, if, if someone it will actually tolerate you. Because, you know, when you're a teenager or when you're a kid, you're really obnoxious without even knowing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for you know, you're, sure your immaturity just causes you to blurt things out and talk too fast and jump around and think things are funny that are only funny when your brain is not developed yet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to run into an adult who is like patient with you and recognizes that you have something going on and thinks it's worth encouraging is like, I mean, it's a, it's a huge thing. It is. Know? I definitely agree with that. And usually like, even in that state, you know, you, you kind of pick up on those adults. You're like, oh, I like that guy, you know. And even, even <laughs> you hear some owls out your way. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a morning dove, actually. Oh, it's a morning dove? Um, but, yeah, it's a, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> it, those, are, those are so important. And, like, because like that, that's like a, to have that access to a guitar every day and that just the, the progressions to being able to try to hash them out. So as you're as you're getting some rhythmic chops, are you noticing like what are some like kind of songwriting patterns you're noticing when you're really kind of trying to understand lyrics? Well, the Beatles obviously had great chords, you know, right. and they and they weren't easy chords. Some of them they had a lot of passing chords, you know, augmented fifths and and, and various things, or they would favor them, the, the you know the four minor a lot, which made them a very distinct right. Uh, but I, I was um, basically just learning the chords my friend wanted me to learn so he could play lead. And he was um, really into Neil Young, which meant, meant I played E minor a lot. <laughs> yeah, down by the river, man. <laughs> exactly. E minor to A for five hours while my friend was like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I I got pretty, pretty bored. Um, with it and uh, started writing my own songs um but they weren't good songs yet but they, uh, you know i was trying i was um i was really proud of myself when when i would finish something that actually even sounded like a song right you know? <laughs> and um but I, but i was always really listening to lyrics a lot like um and i had a good like you know obviously bob dylan um but also, like I said, Roger Miller, Smokey Robinson, some of his right. lyrics are just phenomenal, you know. 
and I had a real, I really became more of a writer in my mind instead of like a, a gigging musician kind of person, you know? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the musicians in my neighborhood who were better than me, they went in, they, they were playing in cover bands. And when they got out of high school, I actually got work in cover bands. And that never interested me because, um, I don't think I was ever going to be good enough to be able to copy a lot of that stuff note for note. But I also just wasn't really interested in playing other people's music. I really wanted to be a writer. And, uh, you know, it was, it was important to me. No, I definitely agree. There's like that, that split, right? There's that appreciation for, man, you can nail that queen solo note from note, fill in the blank, whatever band, you know? And like, but that it's like, where do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time learning how the, how the recording technology works or writing or, you know what I mean? Like, and like I, writing such a vague, like mysterious thing. It's, I think it's harder to like know you're doing good at it other than like that completion. Right. Cause there's so much, there's so many songs out there and like, there's no right or wrong way to write a good song. Did you like, so at that point where you just like, did you have like a routine for writing that maybe carried over till now? Not, not really a routine. Um, writing comes to me when I'm either driving or walking. Mm. Um, I, I don't write with an instrument in my hand most of the time. Most of my songs are fully formed in my head before I even pick up a guitar and figure out what chords need to be there. Um, uh, I usually work backwards from a title. I'll get a, I'll get a, a title and go, ooh, that's a great title. Right. What would, what would the, a song be that would support that title? And I work backwards that way a lot of the time. Okay. That makes uh, sense. You got to have like a direction, a song seed. Yeah. When I was younger, I tried writing with my guitar first and, uh, you know, forcing the issue. Right. And, uh, and, the, and the writing wasn't good. And then uh, at, at some point, all of a sudden, you know, it reversed and the doors opened up and the ideas came to me when I wasn't even trying to write. And then I would have to stop everything and try to chase down the idea and get it down on paper and then figure out the chords and sing it into a tape recorder before I forgot it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's how I write. That, that, and that's how I've written ever since it, it comes out of the blue. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a cliche to say, you know, I'm a conduit or I'm a, I'm an antenna and, and I'm just picking up the ideas and, you know, the muse calls on me and everything, but it sort of is that way. Right. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, I don't even know if it's like a conduit as much as it is like you're just kind of hyper aware of certain things and how they can fit in a songwriting context. You know what I mean? Like, like a, a, someone can hear the word, uh, I don't get no satisfaction. Like some guy can say that all the time and everyone can be like, yeah, we know Pete, whatever. And like, and then uh, Mick Jagger hears it and then it's, a, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just kind of, it, it's being aware, aware of like this beauty that's all around us and how you can mold it into a narrative that everyone can relate to, you know? Well, who, uh, who, who is this guy, Pete? I just threw out a name. <laughs> Cause he should get, he should get a royal he, he should get a royalty. I've been I've been advocating for Pete since uh, the early nineties here. My my dad always used to say for Pete's sake, and I was like, who is this who is this guy Pete? He's got a lot of sake. Yeah, yeah he's out there. 
somewhere. Yeah, he wrote Satisfaction. He wrote Stairway, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, I think just to be aware, it's it's you know that's that's a blessing within itself is just to like appreciate these like floating thoughts a little more deeply than maybe someone else who wouldn't, you know. Um, but to kind of like put it into the narrative a bit, so you're writing these songs. When do you like? In your first band, you did it until like you're 27, right? I uh, what happened with me is that when I, by the time I got out of high school, um, progressive rock had taken over Emerson Lake and Palmer and right. Jethro, Jethro Tull and Edgar Winter Group. You know, these were this was the music that was big. And in my formative years, you know, I was a big fan of garage rock. You know, uh, you know, I was playing Gloria and Wipeout and all that and all the bands Trash I was playing. Man. Yeah, yeah, Surf and Bird was my favorite record ever, you yes. know. And yeah. um and I really was also into the Stooges and the Flaming Groovies and the MC5. Nice. Yeah. In in high school, but by the time I graduated high school, even that wasn't around anymore, mm. you know. And I couldn't relate to the music around me, so I got really into into uh older music, old blues, old bluegrass and old country music. I went backwards and decided not even decided. I mean, I got pulled backwards into the history of everything that um, modern modern rock and roll was based on. Right. Okay. And um, during so during that time, uh, I was just listening a lot and I was writing songs, but I wasn't showing them to anybody because I wasn't sure if they were any good. And um, I I became a dad when I was twenty years old. Hmm. So, so I had responsibilities immediately. I was married with a kid. So I worked as a landscaper. I, I never went to college. I got out of high school and I went right into the, into the workforce. I worked in a knitting mill for two years and then I became a landscaper for five years. I went to school at night and learned offset printing and then worked in that field. And I drove a delivery truck in, uh, in Philadelphia all to make a living because I was, uh, you know, I was, I was a, a guy with responsibilities and, but during that entire time, I was writing songs, but I wasn't showing them to anybody because I wasn't sure if they were good. I didn't have, um, I, I, I just didn't have um, anyone around who knew enough to be able to tell me whether they were up to the caliber of what I was hoping they were, you know? Yeah. I didn't have a mentor. And in the, the early 80s, I was working as a paste-up artist, which is where my printing, um, my printing job led me. Was I wanted to be in the art room, and it was very easy for me uh, to make that switch. And so I, I was a, a paste-up artist, and a friend of mine in Washington D.C. had a mail-order record company, hmm. and he he hired me to paste up his uh, catalog. It was a side job. And he ended up reissuing a, a record by a group called the, the Original Symptoms from Springfield, Missouri. Hmm. And he asked me to, um, he started the label and reissued this record and asked me to design the 45 sleeve, which I did. And, and the band, they were thrilled with it. And they came up to New York to play a bunch of shows and they wanted to meet me. So they put me on a guest list. My first time ever on a guest list ever you know it's pretty cool it doesn't it doesn't yeah. stop being cool <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know i, I was like living basically living a, a life of quiet desperation you know to quote oscar wilde 
And um, I think he said it. Maybe it was Thoreau. I don't know. It was Pete. <laughs> Thoreau, it was Pete. It was Pete. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I was thrilled, you know. So I drove up to New York and I went to see them play. And I went backstage to meet them. And, and they asked me what else I do, you know, besides uh, art. And I, and I said, well, I'm a songwriter. And they said, well, you know, we're really lazy about writing songs. If you have any, if you have any original songs, please send us a cassette. And the leader of the band wrote, wrote down his address and handed it to me. And I went home and I sent him a cassette of like 10, 10 of my songs. And they called me and said, we just worked up five of these and the audiences love them. Whoa. Uh, wow. you, you're, yeah. you're a great, you're a great songwriter. And I'm like, really? uh for real and they're like yeah we're gonna re and we're gonna make a record and we're gonna record two of these on our album and uh they changed their name to the morels if you find this record you'll love this album it's called shake and push by the morels and they put it out on their own label out of springfield missouri in 1982 and all of the hipsters in new york city ira kaplan was uh a um rock critic for the uh, village voice at that time before he formed yolo tango and he went nuts over the morels and he booked them to play in new york city and the morels invited me to come up and nice. get on stage and yeah. get on stage get on stage and sing with them so i was discovered by new york city as this hot new interesting songwriter it was it was really a surprise to me it was uh it was a surprise to me that my songs were, were as legitimate as they were telling me they were, you right. know, I wasn't aware that I was fully formed at that point. I, I was still, I thought I was still searching and who knows whether it's good because I wrote it and I don't know, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And, uh, that led to, uh, you know, a, a record deal and touring and, you know, it, it led to a career. That's amazing. One, I think what a great like kind of headspace to be in that you're still searching you know, in like in a way, it's kind of like a, it, it, it was kind of it's kind of like working out your songwriting muscles and not looking in the mirror, you know, and then one day being like, whoa, you know, like, but that whoa is coming from the crowd screaming at you and bands that you admire being able to like turn what you wrote into like a song on their record. That's that's incredible. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a big thing for me. You know, right. I was really I was really living in obscurity and had pretty much ruled out a career in music at that point it just didn't seem like it was in the cards for me you know right well it's so time taking and you need those moments to write and you need those moments to record and when you're raising a family there that's you need to be there for those moments it's like it's man i don't that's hats off to getting through that because that had to be a tough a tough situation man yeah yeah well it was you know uh it was what it was right i didn't know it was a i didn't know it was a tough situation because it was the only situation i knew right right <laughs> yeah. well, i mean i guess yeah. in the rock and roll <laughs> comparison of it right um yeah but okay so from there you're you're touring and you're mostly doing like a solo act right oh no i started the ben von combo okay um in 1983 uh when when it really looked like i had something going on i uh I formed a band, the Ben Von Combo, and uh, we were uh, discovered by the Violent Femmes manager. Um, I already had stuff going on. I was getting written. My first gig ever in New York City, I was written up in the New York Times. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was like a, I, I really arrived. Uh, right. 
I arrived enough where managers and labels were starting to ask, well, who is this guy, Ben Vaughn? And Marshall Crenshaw recorded one of my songs. Uh, wow. I'm sorry, but so is Brenda Lee, uh, which he put on his third album. So I was on the map, but I was still unsigned. Right. So I formed the Ben Vaughn Combo and we got signed. Put out our first record in 1986. We put out a 45 in 1985. And then we put our first album out in 1986 and started touring, which was nonstop touring for probably the next four years, five years for me. Now, when you're doing that, are you like, this is it finally? Or are you like, holy shit, this never ends? <laughs> like, a combination of both. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, I was thrilled to finally be part of the rock and roll history that I had been observing from right. the side all those years. I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm actually part of this now. Like, some, I remember at one point, I, um, Restless Records, I was signed to Restless Records, and they called a meeting and, and they said, uh, okay, look, your last, your, your album has only sold 33,000 copies. We need to talk. And I remember thinking, 33,000 people own my record? Right. Holy shit. <laughs> 33,000 individuals are, are actually absorbing what I created. And my manager at the time was like, Ben, focus. I'm like, what? And he goes, that's a bad thing that you only have 33,000. I'm like, oh, no, it doesn't sound like it to me. Right, right. That's amazing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, so that had to be like a kind of a hard realm to start to navigate. You know what I mean? Like, oh, wait, that's not good. Like, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the music business is, uh, it's, it's a real head trip because, um, you know, the, well, anytime art meets commerce, you're going to have uh, a lot of uh, inconsistencies and a lot of ups and downs. It's almost like you're inviting manic depression if you get into show business. Right. Because one day you're, you're, you're being celebrated and, and so much ego, ego gratif gratifying things come your way. And the next day somebody tells you they're going to drop you from the label. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you're in, you're, you really got to be strong and you really got to know who you are. You know, you really have to know who you are. I definitely and agree what, with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, a lot of times record companies will tell you who they think you should be. So you're wrestling with who you really are, with who they're telling you, you need to be in order to be marketable. I didn't, I didn't get too much of that because I was so obviously, uh, uh, unique that they, 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 they knew that, you know, like, Hey, you know, let's, let's have Vaughn do a disco record. Maybe that'll sell. That wasn't that, <laughs> that didn't, that they weren't going to try that on me, but they did it with Chicago. Like Chicago actually made a disco album right. <laughs> at, at one point. I mean, you know, a horn band. You know, with, right. with with all with all those hits, they even had to make a disco album at one point. So, <laughs> yeah, the horn ballad band, right? <laughs> Speed <them> yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you know, it, it it's out there. It's called Hot Streets by Chicago. And I remember um, when the Chicago discography was was first released on CD. When that was a big deal. When catalogs were released on CDs in the eighties. It was like the entire Lou Reed catalog will now be available on compact disc, you know? Right, right. 
and they did it with Chicago. And I and I saw an article in Billboard, and they said, "Yeah, they're re-releasing their entire catalog except for Hot Streets." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, I wonder why." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was a sour note. We can edit that one out. <laughs> yeah, let's leave the disco album out. <laughs> was it um? So what led to like uh, so as you're touring? Um, doing your own project, what led to like Cubist Blues? Because that definitely is, is uh, speaking of unique projects with Alan Vega, that uh, unique concept and project. Well, I met Alan Vega in the early 80s, um, right around the time when I first started playing in New York. I was a huge fan of Suicide. Right. <clears throat> but, I, but I also, the, uh, the, his first solo album that had Jukebox Baby on it. Yeah. That was a big influence on me because it was the first time I realized, wow, you can make modern rockabilly, mm. uh, not revivalist like you know, like the Stray Cats, you know, right. with the wardrobe and the hair, but like an actual used rockabilly as a basis for modern expression, and be hypnotic with it too, and only have one chord. That song is one chord, and it's such a fantastic record, and I was such a huge fan of that. And I ran into him at one of my gigs in New York City. He was there. And Sick. I introduced myself to him and I was, bla you know, like blabbing, like probably, you know, incoherently because I was so excited. And he gave me his address and asked me to send him a tape of, of my music. And I did. And he called me on the phone and he tried to get Rick Ocasek to produce me. Wow. He nice. was working with yeah. his work. He was working with him at the time and he flipped out over my music. And, um, he, he, he taught me a good lesson because I was so, um, in awe of him that I was kind of shuffling my feet and saying, Oh man, you know, I'm really glad you listened to it. You know, you, you didn't have to, I mean, I know you have a lot of other things to do and to take the time to listen to my music. And I was really you know, laying it on and he just told me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he said, look, you know you're good or you wouldn't have given me a tape so just knock it off because <laughs> you're a good songwriter you know you're a good songwriter act like it and he just cut me off at the knees you know yeah <laughs> and uh, and i realized yeah false modesty you know, very unattractive thing you know right it's if you think yeah 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 if you if you, if you know if you know you're on to something don't pretend you're not on to it you know um which i was doing because i was stunned to be taken seriously you know Right. Uh, by, by people I admired. Yeah, it's interesting that fine line between conceited and confident. You know what I mean? Like, there's a certain thing that puts you on one of the, one of that, one of the sides of that line. But I definitely agree with that. Like, like, cause if not, you kind of, you spend too much time kind of futzing around, not, not moving on. So, so, so he listens to the tape. What leads to Cubist Blues? Well, we become good friends, Alan and I. And uh, so we're good friends. And, and, and I always said, you know, Alan, I always I, I've always thought of you as a blues singer. One of these days we need to go into the studio and cut like a midnight blues album. And he was like, yeah, man, you know, say the word whenever whenever you're ready. And so the idea was there. And then I became friends with Alex Chilton. We had the same booking agent and um, the booking agent put us on a bunch of shows together throughout the Midwest in 1987 so we were with each other every night and we we became instant friends and we would play guitars together at the hotel in the afternoon and hang out and go to you know go to um pawn shops and look at instruments and we really got to know each other and became friends 
and we would visit each other. Like I would go to New Orleans and stay with him and he would, he would come up and visit me. <clears throat> and, um, he was a guy who had incredibly diverse musical interests. The, the, the music he was into was all over the place, like, like it was with me. So we had a lot in common in that sense that there were no, no boundaries, no borders, you know? Right. Uh, when it, when it came to what we liked, it could be Lawrence Welk or it could be the dead boys, you know, it didn't matter. There was no, uh, no, no, uh, no rules. <laughs> and, um, finally in the early nineties, Alan and I decided we were really going to do it. I'm going to book time in New York and we're going to make this blues album. And I was getting ready to figure out who the musicians would be. And I was on the phone with Alex and I was telling him about the project and how Alan didn't want to know who I was bringing in and he didn't want to talk about what we were going to create because he wanted it to be completely spontaneous. <laughs> and I had never worked that way before. Right. And, um, you know, I had a budget. It was a very small budget to do it. And, uh, I was describing, you know, my, my, I guess it was, you know, my, my trepidation about working that way. Like, wow, I could blow this budget on a bad album because Alan will not, talk about what we're going to do <laughs> and he doesn't want to know who i'm bringing in the play or anything he just wants to show up push record and 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 sing the blues and alex got real excited he goes man that sounds like a great way to work can i play on this thing and i said well we don't have any money to fly you up and he goes i'll pay my own way this this i mean i love alan i love jukebox babe and i love alan and that's one of the first records alex and i bonded over actually was jukebox babe we realized we were both yeah. Alan Vega fans very early on. And so Alex flew up and uh, we rustled up a bunch of instruments in the city and took them down to the studio. And we booked two nights. Actually, we booked one night and the first night went so well, we decided to come back the next night and see if anything else could could happen. And it was a completely improvised record. That's amazing. It's such a cool record. And the idea of cubism in blues and kind of like just how you said kind of harping around one chord or harping around one it I like ah, and and to do it with Alan Vega. That's so cool, man. It was. It was. It was really I didn't realize, you know, I was very busy with a lot of things. I was producing uh stuff for electro records at the time. So I was a very busy guy and I didn't realize how unique the now when I listen to that record or even think about it, I'm like, whoa, the three of us were in a studio for two nights. <laughs> that's, that's, that's unusual. And just, the, and to do it all like, okay, hit go. Usually that's when everyone kind of like croaks and messes up the, you know, when the red button starts glow, glowing, that's when you like, that's when the mistakes come out, but to embrace the, just the moment and have that captured is like beautifully as it is. That's, that's, that's badass. Um, so yeah, yeah, and the combined years of experience the three of us had is why it worked. Right, you know? right. Yeah, you can't just go in there now and have it turn out like that. <laughs> like, I mean, no, maybe. no, you, you know, we, we all had a lot of experience doing, you know, creating music in a variety of ways. And so by the time we're, we were all, we we're confident people, you know. Right. Well, clear, yeah. And that the, at the beginning of that conversation, put that there right like he's like just you're a good songwriter like when yeah I'm, yeah sorry i keep i keep that um but as it was interesting because like during this time you're super busy um with the, the rambler 65 that was all recorded in your car right 
Was that yes. because of how hectic the schedule was? And you're just in between? <laughs> like, is that no, no, no? no. Okay, okay. What's I it? love that though. I, I wish I, w- I wish you were my press agent when it came out. That's a that's a better story. <laughs> no, I was not move. I was not moving. It was parked. Okay. <laughs> and 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 I just you know I want to dispel all rumors. I was not living in my car at the time, which is another rumor that got out there that. Vaughn was so destitute, he was living in his car and made a record. Uh, that did not happen. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, uh, that was an interesting project. Uh, what happened is I was um, I was producing a record in a studio in New York City that cost a lot of money, and we were trying to get a good sound on, on some conga drums. Okay. And they had and they had the conga player out in the main room, and they and they started hanging. It wasn't sounding good, so they started putting baffles and then hanging blankets over the baffles and i'm thinking wow this place is like 250 bucks an hour and you can't get a set of congas to sound good what's going on here right and as a joke i said to the engineer you know we could take those congas outside and put them in my rambler (laughs) and it would and and they would sound better and and he laughed and i laughed and then i started thinking about it like wow i wonder and uh i told a friend about it i said you know i'm i'm going to prove you can make a good record without a recording studio to, to the point where you could even make a good one in your car. And he said, well, now that you told me you have to do it, you <laughs> have to do this. So I did, I had a home recording studio in New Jersey and I would drag everything out into the driveway and set it up in the car. And I would record for about six hours, drag everything back in real to real, you know, a real to real deck, yeah, yeah. A, mi- a mixing board, you know, and I had a bass guitar and a snare drum and, and I used the trunk as an isolation booth for my guitar amp so I could nice. sing and play at the same yeah. time and, and have total separation, you know? That's incredible. Yeah. yeah it, was an ex- it was an experiment. And it was also, as I look back on it now, it was actually my midlife crisis. Mm. You know, instead of, instead of buying a motorcycle or divorcing my wife and, uh, <laughs> you know, take, taking up with a, with a young girl, you know, yeah. I, I, I moved I move my, my recording studio into my car. <laughs> 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 uh, which you know is just as crazy as as anything right it's uh, back to diy i'm doing it myself in the driveway yeah. <laughs> yeah and i had this long really long heavy duty orange extension cord that went into the kitchen window oh gosh <laughs> and plugged into the wall that was my power source this is the take um, no <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but it was a, it was a cool project and and um and it came out really good and, yeah. and Rhino record, Rhino, but, but it was set on the shelf for about two years. Uh, cause I had moved in the meantime, like I, I recorded Cubus blues and, um, Rambler 65 and an, and an album called instrumental stylings all within six months. Hmm. And then I moved to, to LA to pursue film music. Right. So, and so, so Rambler 65 didn't come out until two years later because it was one of many things I had. Uh, on the shelf, you know. Got it. God, it's it's interesting when like I don't know you, you focus so much on getting that done, and it's like how like it it makes so much sense when you start like talking to people like, oh, I wrote that so long ago, I don't even know. You're like, what do you mean? You're putting it out right now, like you know, like it's interesting that kind of like kind of when you got it in the can and you got to wait to put it out, even though it just comes out. Um, but like with the so you're you're pursuing film and and composing and orchestrating music for film and like how did the songwriting craft co- like overlap with the 
with film and TV? Like, how did composing, um, in that sense, like, how did those two, like, skill sets mirror each other in a way? Yeah, I'm not sure if they did, actually. Um, you know, when I the first record I ever owned was um, a Dwayne Eddy album, which was an instrumental record. My uncle gave it to me when I was six years old. Yeah. He worked, he worked at RCA, at, at one of the RCA factories in, in Camden, New Jersey, where I grew up. Um, RCA had owned that city. There were probably 28 different buildings that RCA had factories and offices. And my and everyone in, in, in my family worked for RCA. And my uncle uh, worked in the pressing plant. And you were allowed to take free records, you know, on your way out. When you clocked out, there was a box of records. And you could grab whatever you wanted. Huh. And he grabbed a copy of Twistin' and Twangin' by Dwayne Eddy and gave it to me. And it's the first record I ever owned. So instrumental music. Uh, became a huge, I, I, I have a real love for instrumental music all through the years. And one style of guitar I decided to really uh, dedicate myself to was surf guitar. Uh, right. Dick Dale. Yeah, yeah. Dick Dale. And, um, and you have to imagine, you know, and like, you know, when I'm graduating high school in 1973, when, when Jethro Tull was huge, being really good at surf guitar was was basically like speaking a dead language fluently. <laughs> like I was flu fluent in a dead language, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. nobody wanted it, and I was dedicated to it. And all through the years, I was always dedicated to surf instrumental music as 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 a musical expression. Um, I really enjoyed playing it, and I loved the way the record sounded. And um, when Pulp Fiction came out. All of a sudden, that's what everybody wanted. Hmm. And I landed in Hollywood right at the, the summer that Pulp Fiction came out. I flew to L.A. to have meetings with music supervisors about potentially moving to L.A. as a composer. And I couldn't have timed it better because my expertise at surf guitar all of a sudden was a very valuable thing. Right, nice, yeah, and it's interesting with the surf music. It is like it, you're not just playing over the chord; you're kind of highlighting it in a way. Like you, you make it. It's very melodic in the sense. It's not just kind of like sometimes blues or like rock solos. There's like jargon, 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 lick, jargon, 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 jargon. You know, what I mean, just like kind of banter, 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 catchy bit. And like with surf music it's really writing, composing melodies, like so much of like Dick Dale's a perfect example. Like so many of his like leads or like, they're so singable. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's very musical. It's a compositional way. Like, even when you improvise, uh, you're, you're doing it in a more uh, compositional sense than someone in a blues band would do. Right. Even though, uh, what was the, what's the bit off the, uh, play blues until you die, the harmonica bit. <laughs> I don't know that was that. A, uh, that was on. It was in your. It was on a. I read it for. A, oh, 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 oh! That yes, yeah. yes, 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 <laughs> yes. What well, is another? That's another. Yeah, another instrument. I I play blues harmonica. Yeah. And uh, when I got out of high school, I was playing in uh, biker bars, and um, and, and um, you know, and they would yell, "Play blues or die!" And I would, Get. you know, I chose the blues. Uh, I'm still here. <laughs> it made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, yeah, that, that, yeah. I was backing up a friend of mine, uh, who 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 was a uh, he was great. He had a voice like Bob Seger, 
and he had a big, you know, handlebar mustache and he would play these biker bars and he had me play second guitar and harmonica with him. And boy, bikers love harmonica. Right. They really love blues harmonica. So I had to get good really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Was it, um, so working with like a, on a show like that 70s show, like now, do, are these like rock surf tropes making sense with composing for that? Like what's that process? Oh, totally. Like? Yeah. Totally. That was the best show because yeah. cliches, rock cliches, like bad company, you know? Right. Or, and what's really funny is, um, I wasn't aware the creators of that show. They, uh, they also created third rock from the sun, which I, I did the music for. Right. And they were writers for Saturday night live for like seven seasons. Huh. Okay. Uh, before they before they created these sitcoms and when we did that 70s show they asked me to uh you know record a bunch of cues and bring them in for them to listen to so i i uh, i play guitar and bass I, I got a drummer and i play guitar and bass and in a lot of the cues i, I said well we got to go with the cowbell you know we got to <laughs> yeah. go with the cowbell yeah and when i and when i brought it in they laughed so hard uh almost to the point of tears and i'm like what's so funny and i go well you know we we wrote that 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 more cowbell bit for <laughs> for uh for um uh will what's his Farrell. name uh, uh will Farrell uh, and um yeah and, and and christopher walken yeah 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 right <laughs> yeah they wrote that bit so i'm i'm and i'm not i'm not aware i'm i'm i'm, I'm telling them how funny cowbell is and they're like yeah <laughs> and they're saying yeah and they're like yes we know <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible um, so i guess those like that paying attention to those those patterns from when you first started to hear music so indefinitely like are shining in these moments when you have to do cues for like changes in shows and like transitions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. I had like a catalog and I'm sure you do too. Any rock fan has a catalog of riffs stored in their brain that they think are amusing, you know, (laughs) or or, iconic or amusing or both, you know, um, and I, I I had that at the ready. They were they were lucky that they got a they got a composer who was not from who was not trained in a composer sense. I came from the rock and roll world, right? And and that and that's the only way that show was going to work is if they got somebody who was who had a uh, a good ear for for the stupidity of rock as as well as as being a, a, a someone who can compose. You know, I I, I love the cliches. I love the cliches. And that show really needed that. Yeah. No, that, and the, the, when the commercials would cue in, because I watched that show a lot, man. I've heard <clears> your music a lot. <laughs> man, like, it, de- it definitely just, it brings the whole tonality of the of the time period within it. Um, one, one, one other thing I wanted to kind of pick your brain about was uh, we didn't talk about your DJ, your DJ life. You got a shout out from Bob Dylan on his radio show for um yeah. how cool yeah. is that man well that was that was that was a total surprise um and what's funny about it is when i was in high school a friend a friend of mine and i we used to do a bob dylan imitation <laughs> and my friend's name was bob west and, and we'd be passing each other in the hall in high school and i, and I would go bob west <laughs> and he would say ben vaughn and we would laugh you know and then Somebody told me, hey, man, Bob Dylan just talked about you on his XM, Sirius XM show. So I, I, you know, 
I immediately got the trial subscription. <laughs> <laughs> Signed <laughs> <You know>? up. For- <laughs> yeah, and I and I heard it, and yeah. and when he said my and when he said my name, he goes Ben Bone. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> it, it's, it's exactly like Bob West's imitation of him. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that was a thrill because uh, he played my song Jerry Lewis in France and he explained to the audience that using Jerry Lewis as a metaphor and to have Bob Dylan recognize, you know, my 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 metaphoric, metaphorical, yeah. I'm not sure what the word is, my talent for metaphor was, um, you know, I was, I was like, I can die a happy man, you know. <laughs> That, but but not but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, but not yet. But man, wow, that's like he's a metaphor guy. You know, to get him to be like, that's a good one. You know, what I mean, holy shit, that's incredible, man. That's that's making it. That's how you know your songwriting skills are are, are valid when Bob Dylan and Alan Vega are like, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and Alex was uh, was was another good one to get um, uh, affirmation from, right? You know, right, I mean, right. Obvi- obviously, an incredible songwriter himself. Uh, the big star stuff is just phenomenal as far as writing goes. Wow, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was it was great to find out that I was a contemporary, um, as opposed to like a, a distant fan or someone who, who would never be up there with those people. Um, it, it, you know, it really is, is, is proof that music is a class, classless uh, thing, that anybody who has a song that is put together well has a shot. You know, and that's what I, I, felt, I felt like with me, is like I wasn't quite ready to see myself as a contemporary in the beginning um because i'd been a fan for so long and i'd been off to the side of the, of the action you know i wasn't involved in the action like alan vega or you know alex or or bob dylan were you know they they were the action and i was witnessing it and then to be all of a sudden part of the action and recognized as just you know a contemporary was um uh it took a little getting used to but um but i i love it <laughs> and it's, and it's encouraging to anyone out there listening, you know, right now or yourself that um, it can happen to anyone right. if you dedicate yourself to quality. You Definitely. Know? And like, I, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap it than on that, man. That's beautiful. Um, before before we do uh, kind of wrap it up, are you planning to do any uh, any touring now that stuff's kind of lightening up with this new record coming out? Oh, no, I'm leaving for a... Uh, a 10 city tour of Spain in May. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Man. Playing a kickoff show in Philadelphia. Yeah. A little, a little warm up gig. I'm taking my Philadelphia band with me. Some of the guys from the combo actually um, are, you know, we're still playing together. I've been playing Beautiful. with the same band in, in Philly for like almost 40 years now. And um, we're, yeah, we're going over to Spain for 10 shows. You, where are you playing in Philly? What's the, it's a place called the Ambler. No, no. The Ardmore music hall. Okay. Very. It's cool. a fairly fairly new venue. We I played there about I played there right before lockdown. Before and it's a it's a really great venue. Awesome, man. Well, man, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. This has been awesome. I'm like super inspired, like, and have, I do I love diving into your career and like. Right on, man. I I really enjoyed it. You're you're a very good interviewer. Um, 
very comfortable right away. Like I felt like we, 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 we already knew each other before we started even, you know, a, a minute into it. So it's great. Well, thank you, man. Likewise. Likewise.